0: I'll invite you, brothers and sisters, to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. That's where we are this morning, Revelation chapter 4. We'll look at the entire chapter together. And if you're using the church Bible, it's 1,030. 1,030. So there's a lot of Bibles in the room. Help yourself to one. If you don't own your own Bible, you're welcome to take that one home and make it your own. All right, let's give our attention to God's word being read together. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of God, and we thank him for it. Would you pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father, you have spoken. We have this book of your words, your word to us. We pray that by your Spirit you would be with both hearer and proclaimer in this time. That we might meet with you through your word that we might be transformed by it. God, a man, has no power to accomplish anything of eternal and lasting value. We all agree on that. So Father, we're asking that you do some divine work in here through your Holy Spirit. Hold us true to your word. Give us ears and hearts for your word, and do that work in us. We pray, may your will be done in this time. For the glory of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Well, it's a pretty obvious uh, truth, I guess, that walls define spaces. In this building, we have some classrooms with whiteboards, and this room, of course, you're in it, we have many chairs, special lighting, and a sound system that usually works. Uh, in my study down the hallway, there's a desk and a lot of books. And, and like your house, you have rooms. And in those rooms, there are walls that define what's in that room in some sense and contain the purpose of the room. But there are doors to give access. Again, a very obvious thing, I know. Now, if the one who is responsible for the room, the one who owns the room, as it were, opens the door to you, what that implies, of course, is that there is a welcome, a welcome to to see, a welcome to know, a welcome to experience, to to fellowship with the ones inside. John, the, the apostle of Jesus, who wrote this revelation by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He describes himself in chapter 1, verse 9, as your, our brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's how he describes himself. Now enabled by the Holy Spirit, he has been given a vision. And and what he sees is the Son of God and he hears about the state of the church. And that was the, the seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. He hears about the state of the church because they need to be in a position to endure. Because it's going to get interesting and it's going to be difficult. And so John, having learned the state of the church, is welcomed through an open door to understand the the source and the reason for everything that he will see. Now we'll we'll get to the details of what will happen in chapter 5. But here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to follow John as he is led by Christ to see first the place and then in that place meet the person and then finally understand the purpose for everything he sees. My clever alliteration there the place the person and the purpose and that's will function that will function as our outline this morning so the place the person and the purpose for everything he sees as he is welcomed through this open door let's first talk about the place there's a, an old expression you probably don't hear it much anymore uh, it used to be that if you wanted to describe something that was so wonderful, so, so unusually good, that the experience would be described, and of course with some hyperbole, as out of this world, right? So it could be an overly lofty description for a dessert, but I know I have said to Kathy that cherry pie was out of this world. I love cherry pie. I love when she makes cherry pie. Again, maybe a little hyperbole. Now, at the beginning of the Revelation, John tells us he's on this island called Patma. So it's a genuine place, okay? So it's in the Aegean Sea. You can look at it in your Bible map. And there he has this vision of the resurrected Christ. And, And then he's given, as I said, some pronouncements and prophecies and exhortations that he's supposed to write down to these seven specific churches in Asia Minor. He writes them down, of course, not only for their sake, but also for the sake of churches in every time and every place. But then chapter 4 begins with after this, after this. And that's kind of nonspecific, isn't it? It could very well refer to the sequence of what he hears after this. Or it may refer to a period of time later. So we don't know if it's that same Lord's Day or if the vision happens after this, sometime later. Days, weeks, we don't know. Probably doesn't so much matter. But after this, he is shown in his vision through this open door. And then he is ultimately taken to a place by the Spirit while he's in the Spirit that is out of this world. A place called heaven. Now John's tour guide and host is none other than the Christ. And we know that because he identifies in in the passage as the one speaking the first voice that he heard. We see that back in chapter 1, verse 10. The one speaking to me like a trumpet, he describes there. The one who said, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Chapter 1, verse 18. That can be none other than the Christ crucified and raised on the third day. Clearly Jesus. And, and he, he's given that invitation to come up here. Now, John says, as I mentioned, that he was in the Spirit, and it's by the Holy Spirit that he could see one seated on the throne. Now, he will be shown, as I said, he will be shown what must take place after this. And like I said, that description begins in chapter 5, and we're going to deal with that next time. But what I want us to do is focus on this out-of-the-world place, this heaven. Now, as I studied this, I asked myself, well, What is heaven? What is heaven? The Greek word, Uranos. You'll recognize that as the mythological god, but also the name of the seventh, I think the seventh planet in our solar system, Uranus. In scripture, that word heaven, Uranos, is used to describe different things. So within the observable creation, you could say the heavens is the sky, the, the place where the birds fly, where the where the clouds are, in the heavens. But the heavens are also that realm beyond the earth's atmosphere, the, the realm of the stars, the solar systems, things like that. You know, the final frontier for you Trekkies, right? Space. But heaven is also, that same word is used to also describe the place where God dwells. And and this is the heaven that John is welcome to in his vision. Now, the prophet Isaiah had a similar vision of heaven, and I'll remind you what it says there in chapter 6, the glorious section of Scripture. He says, he writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. I take it that What Isaiah saw is is that same place that the Apostle Paul was caught up to. I'll remind you of the context of that. The Apostle Paul was caught up to what he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, as the third heaven. The third heaven. You might think, what is that? Well, possibly, and this is not term is not used in scripture if the first heaven is the sky and perhaps if the second heaven is what's beyond the earth's atmosphere we can see it logically would follow that this third heaven is somewhere beyond creation as we know it and that place paul was allowed to see but at the risk of being conceited for having had that vision of heaven he was he was told that you you may not utter words about it you You cannot tell about it. The Lord, if you recall in that passage, sends him a messenger of Satan, what he calls a thorn in his flesh to prevent him from being conceited. But he had this experience of seeing what he describes as the third heaven, and I take it as the same thing that that John is welcomed into. Now again, studying this, I I found myself wondering, and perhaps you have as well, where and what is heaven, this heaven? Now, given what the Bible says about the very nature of God, I think you'd have to agree with this. Heaven cannot be some place that contains God. Now, I know the Bible uses language like that, right? Uh, Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, we're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven. But... That's not the same as saying Josh is in his office. It's different, right? We take from Scripture that God is omnipresent. There is no place that God is not. In fact, Jeremiah, uh, the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, Can a man hide himself in the secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? declares the Lord. There's nowhere where God is not. And at the prayer of dedication of the temple, if you look back in uh, 1 Kings, Solomon having completed the temple, he's, he's praying a prayer of dedication. He says this, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I built. So he understands the limitation of this thing, the symbol of God's presence. It doesn't contain God. Nothing contains God, not even the highest of the heavens. So, whatever and wherever heaven is, we have to understand it is a space where God chooses to particularize His glory for the sake of the one He invites into His presence. Heaven is the place where God reveals something about Himself. And the character of that space is by necessity a reflection of his divine perfections. And so, what does John see? Verse 2 At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Let's first talk about the throne. It's not merely a seat, but a place. Representing the authority, the, the character, the purposes of the one who occupies that throne. That's what the throne is. So if we think about heaven, what is it to John, and what does it mean to us? Now, there are a lot of conceptions about heaven, right? A lot of people talk about that. Go to a funeral, they'll say he's in a better place. They're assuming heaven. People imagine, and we can blame TV and drama for this. Imagine heaven, a place where you do fun things, or you see dearly departed loved ones, or you satisfy whatever whims you might have. But that's not a good way to think about heaven, as at least it's described here. Those those are fictions of the mind. Not to say that we won't see loved ones in the Lord. I'm not saying that. But but whatever heaven is, it isn't primarily about those who have died before us in the Lord. It's about something else. You see, God is literally out of this world. And more accurately, it would be right to say that he is above, he is beyond. He transcends time and space. And there really only is a place called heaven because there is first a person whose glory it reveals. Which is to say, brothers and sisters, heaven is all about the glory of God. Not any other imaginations about what we might like it to be. Playing harps, eating cream cheese on a cloud, right? That's not it. That was a TV commercial heaven exists because there is a person whose glory it reveals and i want to get to that person so that's the next section the person so john is sees the place called heaven and now he meets the person now it's not an uncommon thing there are some people who want to maintain Uh, some level of spirituality in their lives. But what they do is they they resist the God of the Bible, and, and rather than throw away any idea of the divine, they may acknowledge that there is some kind of higher power. For them, this amorphous power might even be benevolent, but in some sense, certainly not controlling. This higher power to them perhaps is a thing, a nebulous energy like the Force in Star Wars, right? Now again, as I was thinking about this, as people try to conceive of their higher power, try to understand uh, the idea of the, the above and beyond without a personal God, I wonder if people ever think through the implications of higher power. Does it have a will? Or does it just depend on the myriad of human wills that seek to direct it? As you can see, that would get into somewhat of a conundrum if its mind is a collective mind, competing wills of humans. Well, certainly that's not the God of the Bible. The self-revealing, self-existent I am. So who is in this scene that we see? Well, first, there's the one with the voice like the trumpet. We already know that's the Son of God. And John tells us he was in the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit is involved here. And then there's the one on the throne. And that is a divine person, not merely a higher power, not a force, a benevolent force, but a person. And so the question I had to ask myself, given what I know about the rest of Scripture, does John actually see God? Does he actually see God? This is what the Lord told Moses. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Paul wrote this to Timothy. The blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, you can't get there, whom no one has ever seen or can see, 1 Timothy six fifteen and 16. Now, if Paul is true, and he certainly is, then what John sees in his vision is, in fact, a. the only way I could come up with it is a sensory representation of that which is unseeable. And you can see this, right? You can see this in the way that John, he doesn't describe the form of God. He only described what's around him. Notice the words he uses, verse 3. The appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The appearance, the appearance. He's des- trying to describe the indescribable in his vision and, and what John does is he reach for these, reaches for these analogies from creation. Precious gems that he's familiar with. right? I looked them up. I, I, never, I didn't know what Jasper was. I looked it up. It's a kind of a greenish gem. And Carnelian is a Beige orange, and when they're polished, they're absolutely beautiful. I was trying to imagine an emerald rainbow, and rainbow is multicolored, but emerald, not sure, but it's beautiful. And so, whatever John sees is to him, it's glorious in his eyes. But not only that, around the throne, verse 4, he sees 24 thrones, and then seated on these thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And I asked myself, why 24 thrones? Why 24 elders? Thrones being the place of authority and responsibility. Elders being the ones occupying that. And perhaps, and some commentarians speculate on this, that perhaps it's representative of the, the 12 sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel, and the 12 apostles, really then together depicting the whole assembly of the representatives of the people of God, old and New covenants Again, that's speculative. These elders appear to John as mature men. That's what the word elder means. But they're clearly, at least in my view, some kind of angelic beings that are there purely to exist, uh, exist there purely to demonstrate how all creation should respond to the Lord. And they have these white garments indicating their purity. They have crowns representing some derived power and majesty. Now, not only does the the scene engage John's eyes, but then the sights and the the sounds together depict this awesome power. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And if you've been in a, a horrific Midwest storm when the lightning is coming, furious and and the thunder, and you hear it, it's terrifying. And I can just imagine John is reaching for this this language to to feel the awesomeness of the power of the one who is seated on the throne. And before the throne, then, he sees these seven torches of fire that represent the seven spirits of God. That's verse 5. Again, the spirit cannot be uh, seen, spirit, right? But he is represented, and at this point we're drawn back again to the same language in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where John includes this blessing using that same language. There are not seven Holy Spirits, but seven being that number of of completion, they represent the full ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then not only that, these seven torches representing the Spirit, but before the throne as it were in verse 6, a sea of glass like crystal. And here's where we get the sense that that this isn't something new. Well, in fact, the things that he's seen before had been seen by others in various different forms. The sea of glass that he sees, this this clear pavement, if you will. It's similar to what Moses and Aaron and and 70 elders saw, uh, of the Israelites saw, when they went up to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. You can see that in Exodus 24. So all of these things are symbolic of the one seated on the throne. Even though John is unable to describe his form, he doesn't. All he does is describe what's around. And what he sees, and what he can only conclude, or what we can conclude by the imagery, is that he sees the beauty of God. He sees the glory of God. Of God. He understands the infinite worthiness of God. He, it's illustrated before him the very power of God, but even the very will of God. Now, thinking about this scene, it occurred to me that what John experienced in his vision, it illustrates something really that's vitally important about how you and I relate to God. Follow me on this. John was invited. Come up here and I will show you. There would be no access to that open door were it not for the Son. And many of us have memorized John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, telling him, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. John would not have access to the open door, were it not for the one who paved the way and opened that door for him. The gulf between God and man is infinite and only Christ can bridge that gulf. Further, apart from the Holy Spirit, John wouldn't have been able to see, right? He was in the Spirit. And you and I, likewise, apart from the Holy Spirit, we would not even have the remotest desire to hear Jesus' invitation to know his Father. Likewise, Only those born of the Spirit, John 3, 5, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's the place, which is heaven, and it exists because it represents the glory of God and the purposes of God and the majesty of God. But in heaven, there's the person of God. The only access to God is through the Son, enabled by the Spirit. So if you want to know God, here's the application. If you want to know God, you can't ascend to heaven yourself. You've got to come through Christ. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you must look to Christ. Well, let's get to the purpose. The purpose of all of this. Why is John given this vision? Why the open door? Why is all of this happening? I said at the beginning, it has something to do with what will come. He's going to hear some very interesting and some startling messages about what will happen. A lot of judgment. So what's the purpose of what he's seeing? Well, I've heard about the Black Hills, and I'm sure many of you visited there. I've never been. I'd like to go someday. I've seen pictures I've seen video as well and pictures of the Grand Canyon. Haven't been there either. And, there's, and you, you will say, if you've been there, there's nothing like being there, right? Kathy and I will be in Florida next week, Lord willing. Now, we, her and I can talk about what it's like at the beach, but you know there's nothing like walking along the Gulf Shore, feeling the sand between your toes and feeling that warm water lapping your ankles, right? Breathing in that salty air. I better get back to here because that's next week, okay? I got some work to do. Right? It's being there. It's the experience of it, right? Now, I don't doubt that, that John knew, the Apostle John knew from the Scriptures about the very nature and the glory of God. But his experience, his experience in heaven, seeing the glory of God reinforced for him with his senses, with all of his senses, and this depiction of it for us laid out in Scripture, by extension, this is for us, the readers, too, reinforces for us how we are to come before a holy God. So I take it that one of the purposes of this scene is for John to know, and for us, by extension, to know, that God seeks worshipers. This fact is demonstrated by the presence of these living creatures. Like, what are these things? Heaven, this, this is a manifestation of, of God's dwelling place. It's a reflection of God's character and will and see again what he sees. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. These aren't a man, a lion, an eagle, and an ox. They're like. They're creatures. They have wings. They have eyes all around, but somehow John sees in the resemblance of these other creatures. And and these living creatures seem like the ones that are described in Ezekiel's vision. And you can look back in Ezekiel chapter 1, 10, and 11. Also, Isaiah's vision of the Lord in chapter 6 of that prophet. There are differences in numbers of wings and how many faces the living creatures have. But but all of these elements seem to be there, the eyes. It, It would seem to me that The purpose of these different creatures, the lion perhaps just represents the mightiest of the the wild animals. The ox, well, that's probably the greatest of the domesticated beasts and, and certainly was offered to the Lord in sacrifice. The eagle, certainly one of the most majestic of all winged creatures. And of course, the face of a man representing humanity. Perhaps these four are representation that all, all creation owes worship to the Lord. All creation. There isn't any aspect of creation that does not somehow, some way, owe the Lord honor and praise and worship. And that's what these creatures do. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The three times holy, expressing that God is superlatively holy. Holy, completely other, set apart from His creation to the utmost. And it's a continual praise. They never, ever cease. And so those are the living creatures. And, and hearing this, the elders there, well, they can't contain themselves. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy of you, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and." By your will, they existed and were created. They have a physical response, right? Bowing before him. And they they cast these crowns, the, the symbol of their honor, before the throne. And recognizing that any honor that they may have had has come from God in the first place, right? What do they even have that they were not first given? And what they do then is they they agree with the living creatures and express the the worth and the power and the authority of the Lord along with the reason for their own existence. Now just taking the purpose of the scene, I, I take it that what John sees, we should be doing. Now John isn't commanded here, go and do likewise. But I take it that what he sees is a a glorious demonstration of truth. It's a glorious demonstration of what is true. Heaven is a place where the person of God is constantly worshipped. Verse 8, day and night they never cease. Now what's the significance of this? I want you to think about this with me. Recall, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, may your name be hallowed. Then he says, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Now, that means a lot of things. That certainly means obedience to God's command, to be sure. But it certainly, by no stretch, does it exclude constant worship. And here's the application, brothers and sisters. And I don't think Christians should forget this, and I doubt that you have, but every once in a while I think we need the reminder, all of creation exists to worship Him. That's its purpose. And when people give him genuine worship from the heart, brothers and sisters, when you give the Lord genuine worship from the heart, it is the truest thing you can do. Because worship of the Lord is the foundation for every other meaningful thing in life. So what I mean by that is if we declare and acknowledge the worth of, and the glory of God above all other pursuits, what it does, it puts everything else that we do in the right perspective. Now, I'm not suggesting that all we do all day long is be bowing before God and casting crowns before Him. But in everything you do, it's an acknowledgement, I am here Because of God, I am here in this conversation to worship God. I am here in this relationship to worship God. I am here fixing my fence post to worship God. I exist in all that I do, doing what I do. I exist to worship God. And we know that God seeks our worship, expressed and lived. But I'll remind you what uh, uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well. John chapter 4, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That gives how we do it, right? If you're a true worshiper of God, you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That means with your heart and based on God's self-revelation. Then he says this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's looking around. Who are my worshipers? Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, God is to be glorified in and through everything that we do. God is to be glorified in our marriages, in our relationship with our children, our families, our friendships, our associations, in our work, in our leisure, in our desires, in our aspirations, in our plans. And really, when we think about it, what do we have that we have not already been given by the Lord? The point, the point of everything, everything is to exalt God through Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans chapter 11. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Now, if you want to understand what that includes, look at the word all, and then the next word is things. And try to figure out what that excludes. Well, you can do the math. Nothing. For from him, those things, through him, those things, to him, that's everything, to him be glory forever. And let me ask you, do you see your life this way? Do you see your life? Getting up in the morning. I exist to worship God. And like I said, that worship isn't just declarative praise like we do when we gather here. It certainly includes that. But it's an understanding that the next thing you do The next breath you take, the next time your heart beats, the next conversation you have, the next thought you think, it is for God. Now, there's a second purpose to this scene. So the first one is that God seeks worshipers. But the second purpose to this scene, I believe, is this, that God will judge. See, the fact that God is worshiped in heaven implies that he should be worshipped everywhere in creation. Again, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. God is worthy of that. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You put the worthiness of God to receive honor, power, and the fact that God created all things, and by his will they existed and were created, you have to logically conclude that everything must worship, and I think we agree with that. Now, verse 11, of course, is in itself the statement, it's glorious worship, and we should want to add our voices to that. In fact, we sang this morning, worthy is the Lamb, singing to the Son of God. But again, something else is implied here. All, if all created beings exist to proclaim the glory of God, if that's true, and yet we can look around and see, because of the corruption of sin, that not all creatures Do that, and we're speaking here of humans. Not all creatures, not all people give glory to God. And if man does not fulfill his purpose, if he does not fulfill his purpose, there is something unjust and untrue of that before God. If you make... If you make something out of clay the bible has this illustration if you make a pot out of clay and it doesn't do what you want it to do you can do what you want with that clay pot can't you you could destroy it it's not it's not fulfilling the purpose you would think you would not think you wouldn't give it a second thought God being just and holy, he must judge. He must judge. Worship of God is not optional. The law, Old Testament law, and this has not gone away, says this You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Again, is there any aspect of you that should not love the Lord your God? Now, you might ask the question, does God need our worship? No, He doesn't need anything from us. But if we people do not love God first, then we are actually living a lie. We need to worship. We have to worship. To live truthfully, both in an expressed way, singing, praising, but also in a dedicating of our very lives, as it says in Romans. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. My body, my whole being, lay down, God, whatever you want, it's for you, and and God's, God's will for you to be dedicated to Him in worship is ultimately going to result in your eternal joy. So it's not an onerous thing. In 1 John it says God's commands aren't burdensome. Obeying God isn't, doesn't do us bad, right? It has its own built-in blessing. But if we refuse to do that, God will judge because he is a just God. Now, in the idolatrous imaginations that people have about God, they conclude, many people conclude that because God is love, therefore it means that God would not judge their sin. And worse, I think they attribute to God an attitude that he has no moral standard at all or that somehow he's beholden to human whims. We hear this all the time. God wants me to be happy in whatever definition of happiness they have. Yes, God wants you to be happy in Him. God does not want you to be happy in indulging your flesh because God knows you will destroy yourself. So you and I were created to know Him. We were created to worship Him and when we live according to that purpose, we are in harmony with the way God created everything and weren't in harmony with him. But like the clay pot that doesn't fulfill its function, God will judge. You see, God will not share his glory. God will not compromise his standards. God will not give up absolute justice. And all of these are indeed aspects of God's eternal love. First of all, his love for his own glory because he has to be true to himself if he is the the highest moral And powerful good. then he must therefore value his glory above all else. He is true to himself. But his love for us is such that we must likewise reflect his glory. Why? Because God is true to himself. I think we get this. We're not born worshipers, are we? Because we're born in sin, our, our default position before God is really idolaters. You might not think of it that way. But it's true, when we, when we sin, when there's lust, when there's greed, when there's pride, what we're doing in those moments is giving priority to our own flesh, right? We're, we're saying, I want to satisfy me. I don't care what God says. And what you're doing in that moment is saying, I'm God. I am. And that's rebellion. And brothers and sisters, I hope you know this and and many of you are already here because you know that the thing that turned you from being a self-worshipper into a true worshipper of God is Jesus Christ himself. See, trusting in the fact that the Son of God died in your place, that that death took away the eternal consequence and the present power, the grip of sin in your life, Trusting in Christ puts you in that camp called righteous. And because Jesus died for you, it means now that God's righteous judgment for your failure to honor Him, right? God's righteous judgment for your failure and my failure to honor Him has fallen on the Son of God who absorbed it completely when He was crucified at the cross. And and here's how this works. Because Jesus, the Son of God, received the judgment of God for our sin, Jesus is now in the place to judge. He's accepted judgment, and now he becomes effectively the judge. And we're going to see this in the next chapter, because he is the lamb who was slain. He now alone has the authority to open the scrolls and the seals of this Judgment. God will judge those who do not bow the knee in worship to Him because God is true to Himself. And God's will, as it is done in heaven, the continual worship to Him will be done on earth. We read this together. I'll remind you the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. These are hard words. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Why? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And here's the good news for all who are in Christ. The the upright shall behold his face. Purpose in what John saw? Continual worship. God seeks our worship. And on the other side of it, those who refuse to give it will be judged. So you cannot be a God unto yourself. There's no middle ground between being a worshiper and not. You're either all in through Christ or you will be judged. And as the book of Revelation unfolds, we're going to see that judgment fall. The people of God have been suffering through the unrighteousness of those who have not trusted in Christ. They will suffer. They will see things. But God's judgment will be specifically unleashed on those who refuse to bow the knee so that in the end, when Christ returns to a purified creation, all God's people will be in heaven here on earth. Well, the place... What is in heaven will one day be seen and experienced in all creation. We look forward to that day. The person, he's the one on the throne, right? And that way to him has been opened up by the one who went to the cross and rose again. And brothers and sisters, if you believe that, that truth has been revealed to you by the one who breathed spiritual life into you. Beloved in Christ, the door is, has been opened to you. Jesus is saying, come. Come, delight in, enjoy. Give worship to him who is holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Father, it's a glorious picture, and uh, it seems in some senses so far away. But you've given us this picture in the, in the word. And, uh, and Father, it's so so we may hold on to that day, but also so that we may endure whatever suffering will happen in the meantime. God, you will make it all right. My only prayer for us as your people is that you keep us faithful to that day. Help us as, as your people to, to be to be constantly thinking about what's going on in heaven, that 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 needs to happen here. And first and foremost in our own lives, as we seek to do everything that we do and offer it up in worship to you. So God, my prayer is that you would be glorified as we think on these things and as our hearts are gripped with the beauty and wonder of who you are, that we would long for you more and more and for the day of the Lord Jesus' appearing. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.